Hello and welcome to JHE Ministries Bible Study, where we study God's Word. I'm Jeffrey, minister and chaplain with JHE Ministries. Glad to have you with us. Be sure to follow this podcast and you will receive notifications every time there's a new podcast. We are in the book of Luke in unpacking chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to chapter 6. We're going to begin with verse 37. Let's get into it. Now last time, as you know, we unpacked the woes that have been given us by Jesus. And now we take a look at the section of judging others. So beginning with verse 37. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use it, it will be measured back to you. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now let's stop there for a moment, and let's go back to verse 37. <clears throat> now these verses further describe the kind of mercy expected of the Lord's disciples. Do not judge must not be understood as ruling out any ethical evaluation at all. Rather, it is defined by the parallel do not condemn. Just as God will give a suitable reward to the merciful, so verse 37 implies that he will bring appropriate judgment on the unmerciful. There are two things that love doesn't do. It doesn't judge and it doesn't condemn. Jesus said, judge not and you shall not be judged. First of all, we must judge people's motives. We cannot read the heart and, and cannot know why a person acts as he does. Then we must not judge another Christian's stewardship or service. God is the judge in all such cases. And in general, we must not be censorious. A critical fault-finding spirit violates the law of God, or the law of love. And there are certain areas, however, in which Christians must judge. We must often judge whether other people are true Christians. Otherwise, we can never recognize an unequal yoke. And sin must be judged in the home and in the assembly. In short, we must judge between good and evil, but we must not impugn motives or assassinate their character. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Now, this makes our forgiveness dependent on our willingness to forgive. But other scriptures seem to teach that when we receive Christ by faith, we are freely and unconditionally forgiven. Now, how can we reconcile this seemingly contradiction? Well, the explanation is that we are speaking of two different types of forgiveness. We're speaking of judicial, and we're also speaking parental. Now, judicial forgiveness is that which is granted by God, the judge, to everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> it means that the 
<clears throat> excuse me, it means that the penalty of sins has been met by Christ, and the believing sinner will not have to pay for it. It's unconditional. Now, parental forgiveness is that which is granted by God the Father to his erring child, a child that is committing an error when he confesses and forsakes his sin. Now, it results in the restoration of the fellowship in the family of God and has nothing to do with the penalty of sin. Now, as Father, God can forgive us when we are unwilling to forgive one another. He doesn't act that way and cannot walk in fellowship with those who do. It is a parental forgiveness that Jesus refers to with the words, and you will be forgiven. Now, in verse 38, those who are generous, Jesus goes on to say, will be abundantly repaid for their kindness. Now, love manifests itself in giving. The Christian ministry is a ministry of expenditure. Those who give generously are rewarded generously. The picture is of a man with a large apron-like fold in the front of his garment, and he uses it for carrying seed. The more widely he broadcasts the seed, the greater his harvest. He is rewarded with good measure, pressed down, shaken down, or shaken together, and running over. And he receives it into his bosom, that is, into the fold of his garment. It is a fixed principle in life that we reap according to our sowing, that our actions react upon us, that the same measure we use to others is measured back to us. If we sow material things, we reap spiritual treasures of inestimable value. It is also true that what we keep, we lose, and what we give, we have. Now, <clears throat> in verse 39, the parable of the blind hypocrite. In the previous section, the Lord Jesus taught that the disciples were, have, were to have a ministry of giving. Now he warns that the extent to which they can be a blessing to others is limited by their own spiritual condition. The blind cannot lead the blind, or both would fall into a ditch. We cannot give what we do not have ourselves. If we are blind to certain truths of God's word, we cannot begin to help someone else in those areas. If there are blind spots in our spiritual life, we can be sure that there will be blind spots in the lives of our understudies. And so in verse 40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Assuming that verse 39 and verse 40 belong together, Jesus's thought in addressing the disciples runs like this. The disciple of a rabbi dedicates himself to his master's teachings and way of life. Thus, he cannot be expected to be different from or better than his master. If the rabbi lacks a proper view of life, his student will also be misled. 
The criticism and hostility already apparent in the Pharisees may unfortunately crop up in their disciples, but they must never find a place among Jesus' disciples. Now, to state this idea in another way, a person cannot teach what he does not know. He cannot lead his students to a level higher than he himself has already attained. The more he teaches them, the more they become like him. But his own stage of growth forms the upper limit to which he can bring them. A student is perfectly trained as a disciple when he becomes like his master. Deficiencies in the doctrine or the life of the teacher will be carried over into the lives of his pupils, and when the instruction has been completed, the disciples cannot be expected to be above the master. Now, in verses 41 and 42, I'm going to look at those together. We have this humorous illustration of the speck and the plank that hits the mark with force when the person who casually calls the person he's criticizing brother suddenly hears himself being called hypocrite by the Lord. This important truth is still more strikingly brought out in the illustration of this speck in the plank. Um, <clears throat> One day a man is walking past a threshing floor where the grain is being beaten out. A sudden gust of wind lifts a tiny speck of shaft and lands it squarely in his eye. Now he rubs the eye to get rid of the irritant, but the more he rubs it, the more irritated it becomes. Just then another man comes along, sees the distress of the first man, and offers to help him. But this man has a plank sticking out of his own eye. Now he can, he can scarce, uh, scarcely help because he cannot see what he's doing. The obvious lesson is that a teacher cannot speak to his disciples about blemishes in their lives if he has the same blemishes to an exaggerated degree in his own life, yet cannot see them. Now, if we are to be a help to others, our own lives must be exemplary. Otherwise, they will say to us, physician, heal yourself. Now, I want to go back to the scriptures and pick up another short section here, a tree that is known by its fruit, with, beginning with verse 43. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Now I want to look at those three verses Together, and then we'll finish this last section. The thought of verse 40 continues, like teacher, like student, like tree, like fruit. Throughout the preceding section and this one, the idea is that of consistency between the source and the product. So this fourth illustration the Lord uses is the tree and its fruit. A tree bears fruit, good or bad, depending on what it is in itself. We judge a tree by the kind and the quality of fruit it bears. So it is in the area of discipleship. A man who is morally pure and spiritually healthy can bring forth blessings for others 
out of the good treasure of his heart. On the other hand, a man who is basically impure will only bring forth evil. In these verses 39 through 45, the Lord is telling the disciples that their ministry is to be a ministry of character. What they are is more important than anything they will ever say or ever do. And the final result of their service will be determined by what they are in themselves. Now leading us into this last section here, the Lord demands obedience. We're going to be talking about the wise and the foolish builders. So let's go back to scripture and pick up with verse 46. Well, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently against that house, and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So in verse 46, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Now the word Lord means master. It means he has complete authority over our lives and that we belong to him and that we are obligated to do whatever he says. To call him Lord and then to fail to obey him is absurdly contradictory. A mere professed acknowledgement of his lordship is not enough. True love and true faith involve obedience. We don't really love him and we don't really believe on him if we don't do what he says. If Jesus' audience was relaxing in the assumption that the preceding teachings were directed only at the at the preceding teaching or directed only at the Pharisees and their followers, they could not dodge the direct force of this particular challenge. It is specifically directed to those who profess to follow Jesus as Lord. It's not mere words, nor even generally ethical behavior, or even religious practice that mark true believers, but whether they do what Jesus says. Jeffrey O'Hara said, ye call me the way and walk me not. Ye call me the life and live me not. Ye call me master and obey me not. If I condemn thee, blame me not. Ye call me bread and eat me not. You call me truth and believe me not. You call me Lord and serve me not. If I condemn thee, blame me not. That kind of sums up that entire verse, which leads us into verses 47-49. To further enforce this important truth, the Lord gives the story of two builders. Now, we, com we commonly apply this story to the gospel. We say the wise man is descriptive of the one who believes and is saved, and the foolish man is the one who rejects Christ and is lost. This is, of course, a valid application. But if we interpret the story in its context, we do find that there is a deeper meaning. The wise man is the one who comes to Christ, salvation, who hears Christ's sayings, which is the instructions of Christ, and who does them. This is obedience. He is the one who builds his life on such principles of Christian discipleship as are laid down in this chapter. 
This is the right way to build a life. When the house is battered by floods and streams, it stands firm because it is founded on the rock of Christ and his teachings. Now, the foolish man is the one who hears Christ's instructions, but who fails to follow the teaching. This is disobedience. He builds his life on what he thinks to be best, following the carnal principles of this world. And then when the storms of life rage, his house, which is without foundation, is swept away. His soul may be saved, but his life is lost. The wise man is the man who is poor, who is hungry, who mourns, and who is persecuted, all for the Son of Man's sake. The world would call such a person foolish, but Jesus calls him wise. The foolish man is the one who is rich, who feasts luxuriously, who lives hilariously, and who is popular with everyone. This the world calls a wise man, but Jesus calls him foolish. And with that, we have come to the end of chapter 6. So next time, we will begin an entire new chapter with chapter 7, where we find the Son of Man will expand his ministry and we will start to unpack the story of the healing of the centurion's servant. And we will see the faith of the centurion. Don't want to miss it. So be sure to be come back here next time. And until then, God bless you and keep living Christian strong.